We discussed last week several chuvas on the topic of co-sleeping or bed-sharing more precisely, the practice of parents, mothers typically, birthing parents, putting the baby in the bed together with them to sleep, to nurse, to spend time together. And we pointed out that it is a, it is a dangerous practice that the, the major medical organizations today are unequivocally opposed to it. The risk is low, but it's, it's there. It's the, the, the risk of the baby dying due to either the bedding or the parents, uh, the, the, the adult sleeper smothering them, crushing them, falling on them, or so on. And they strongly recommend against doing that. They, they note that there are some cultural, uh, the APA understands that there are, that people do it for a variety of reasons, facilitation of breastfeeding, which several of the chuvas discuss, cultural preferences, a belief that it's better. But on the basis of the evidence, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, is opposed to it. And as we see, the postkim, as we, as we started to discuss last week, the postkim are uh, considered quite a serious risk. There are numerous chuvas about the babies dying, and the babies dying at night in co-sleeping situations, and the chuvas are about the question of whether the mother is considered halachically culpable for manslaughter, and with the ramification being that we ha- whether or not we have to prescribe chuva, formal chuva, chuva in the sense of uh, penance, in the sense of assumed suffering, fasting, and so on, and uh, various types of abstemiousness, and tefillah, and so on, whether, if, whether we consider the mother in these cases guilty of manslaughter. So last week we read several chuvas, a uh, couple of which were lenient, the Chasim Sofer and the chuva of the Dvar Leo, Rabbi Lerman, were both lenient on various grounds. They said the mother was doing it for the child's benefit, she wanted to nurse him, and then she fell asleep, and she was helping the child. Either it's like the case of a physician, of a physician, or a, who who injures the baby in the course of treatment, or injures a person in the course of treatment, or like a parent who's who's doing his disciplinary duties as a father, who uh, unfortunately accidentally kills his child, who are putter from Gullus, they're putter from the need to go to the city of refuge. Er Miklat that we read recently in the Torah, and similarly they'd be putter, they'd be not considered culpable for manslaughter. On the other hand, we mentioned Rav Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the, the author of the Ben Ashkai, who took for granted that she is liable, that, that, and, she, and, and she has all kinds of tshuva, he says, that she has to do. He prescribed all kinds of tshuva that she should do, fasting and so on, and tefillahs that she says, and etc., etc. And that's what we read last week. So we're going a little bit out of order. This week we're going to read the two early, and the, the two earliest tshuvas of which I'm aware on this topic. One is by the Masas Binyamin, and one is by the one is by the Avodah Segershuni. The the, the, the Masas Binyamin was an early was an early Polish posik. He was about he was about four hundred years ago. He was one of the he was he he, he was uh, he was Rabinyamin Eisenstadt Rabinyamin Solnik Solnik they call him. He was one of the earliest of the Binyamin Aaron. Slonix, uh, he was uh, born in about 1530, died 1620, a rabbi, rabbi in Avbeston in Poland. He was a student of the Ramah and the Marshal, the, 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 the great early Ashkenazic Akronim. He was, he, he was an early Polish posek about four centuries ago, and he wrote the earliest, uh, he, he kicked off the whole discussion of this, of this question of mothers who accidentally killed their children. He actually is going to quote one earlier tshuva, of the Maram of Rottenberg, who was centuries earlier in the time of the Rishonim, but I don't know if anyone has actually turned up that tshuva or found an independent uh, existence of that tshuva. The earliest tshuva of which we have a record, of which I'm aware, 
is this tshuva of the Masis Minyam. So he tells, he tells the question as follows. He says, The woman put the child in his crib. They were not co-sleeping. She put the child in his bassinet, in his crib. She does not know. She has no idea how the child got from his crib into her bed. She has no idea how the child ended up in her bed. She just woke up. She woke up from sleep. She found the child with her in bed, dead in her arms. She has no idea how the child died, how he got into her bed in the first place. You know, to, uh, anyone who's been a parent can, uh, can probably relate uh, to this. My wife keeps reminding me of the time where she was so exhausted, she would wake up in bed and frantically say, where's my baby? And then she would see the babies in the crib, and she would say, how did, he get, how did she get there? I, last I recall, I was holding him on the, on the chair in the, in, the, in the living room. So that's what happened here. She has no idea how this baby got from his crib to her arms, except that he was dead in this case. Vashifcha, they had some kind of maid, a nanny, housekeeper, they had, they had some kind of uh, domestic servant. Magedas, her version of the story is, She brought the child to his mother in the middle of the night, apparently, and she placed him in a nursing position. And she said that the mother took the child from her. She claims that the mother was apparently awake and at least semi-conscious, as much as... Uh, mother of an infant in the middle of the night can be. She claims the mother was at least semi-conscious and took the child. This, this domestic servant has a fairly dramatic uh, and uh, somewhat uh, spicy version of the story. She says that when she brought the child to his, to his mother, the mother got upset. She got angry at the servant for kill Osa, and she cursed her. I want to go to sleep. Leave me alone. I don't want this baby right now. So this is all the Shifcha's version of events. She says, I brought the child to you. You took her. You were awake enough to take her and to curse me for bringing the child to you. But you took, you, at the end of the day, you took the child from me. Whatever happened after that is on you. And the mother says, I don't remember. I don't know anything about this. Uh, she says, I don't know what happened. I, she, she wasn't denying it. She, she admitted it was possible. She didn't say, I would never do that. She didn't say, it's impossible. She said, I don't remember. I don't know. It, it's, all, it's all a blur. It's all, I have no memory of what happened last night. The mother, again, the, the mothers in these chuvas were often pious. They wanted to do the right thing. They felt guilty. They wanted to accept some kind of chuva. Maybe what she said is true. Maybe I, did, maybe I did take the baby and forgot about it. Maybe I reacted like this. Maybe I took the baby and then fell asleep. Maybe it's all my fault. So that was the question that came to the Masis Binyam. So he ultimately is going to Paskin that she should accept at least some level of tshuva. She does have some moral culpability. Between here and there, though, he has a number of twists and turns. He goes back and forth and raises a number of interesting issues. Several of them we discussed already, but several of them we didn't. But he, but he puts an interesting spin on a number of these issues. Begins by saying, We don't know exactly what happened. It's true. We're never going to know exactly what went on that night, that fateful night. But it's a suffix nefashos and it's lechumra. If there's a suffix that you're guilty of, of a serious avera, and it's a question of tshuva, we go lechumra. You should accept tshuva on the possibility that maybe you're guilty. Fascinating raya. The proof is from Eov, Sha'amar Ulechatu Vagomer. The reference here is to a Pasuk in the first parak in Eov. The first three Prakim are the narrative ones, the ones that are relatively easy to understand. So Eov, it, it says that they, they would make a big party, and 
Eov with all his children, they would make a grand party, and in the morning it says he brought carbon olos, he brought carbonos of ola in number equal to all his children, to all his family, because Eov said, Ulay chatu we had this big party, who knows what went on at the party, maybe they did a chet, maybe they blasphemed uh, internally, even I didn't even hear them, maybe they blasphemed in their heart against God, so Eov didn't say, I don't know if they did anything wrong, I'll wait till someone brings me evidence that they did, Eov said, it's a possibility, it's possible that they committed a chet, therefore, uh, I'm going to bring a carbon on their behalf as a form of kapara for them, Maybe they did a chet, says the Masis Binyamin, that we see that a person needs a, person needs a kapara for a suffix chet. In Bashar Averis Kach, if this is true for other Averis, Bashvichas Dama, Malachas Kama Vakama. Certainly murder, a very serious Avera, a fortiori need a kapara. The truth is, the Pasukan Eov is not any other chet. It's talking about Berecho Elokim, which is cursing Hashem, which is a very grave chet. I'll call upon him, he says, it's a Kalvachomer. Certainly, if someone has a suffix, whether he committed. Shvichas Damim, he needs a kapara. The Odraya, an even more, a much more straightforward Raya, may Asham Tali, Shemavin Alasafik, the carbon prescribes a carbon called Asham Tali. There are two kinds of Asham, Asham Vadai, we're going to say in Vidya of Yom Kippur in about a month, we're going to say, Al Chaycha Telefnecha Basham Vadai Vesali. There are two kinds of Asham. Certain Ashamim were brought as kapara for a specific Chatayim, a few specific Chatayim. Most Chatayim have a Chatas, a few. Exceptions bring an Asham. There's also something called an Asham Tali. Asham Tali is a dependent Asham, an Asham where the, it's brought for any Chait, for Chatayim in general, where the occurrence of the Chait is uncertain. A person is not sure. He ate one of two pieces of meat. One was Chelev, one was Kosher. He doesn't know which one he ate. And in a case where a person may have done an Avera, that would be Chayav Achatas, but he's not sure. It's a, it's a matter of Suffolk. You bring an Asham Tali in the interim, until you find out whether you were chote or not, you bring an Asham Tali to shield you from punishment for your, your possible chet. Even though it's a suffix, you need a kapara, you need an Asham Tali. However, he says, now he turns around and says, In a certain sense, we have an additional leniency here. She's, she's not as guilty as a straightforward co-sleeper who killed her child. Because even though, because on the one hand, he says, an ordinary co-sleeper is much more culpable because what she's doing is, uh, is, is much more reckless. He said, even though you might argue that, that any co-sleeper who kills a child is, is shogegus vanusa, we should treat her as a shogeg, or even a nonus, it's not her fault, she didn't mean to do it, certainly. Why? While she's sleeping, she can't be held accountable for her actions. She didn't do it on purpose, she was asleep. How can you hold someone responsible for what they do when they're asleep? However, he says, that's not really the case. That is worse in our case. She's not an onus in that case. She is amazed in that case. Yeah, she was sleeping. But going to sleep in, going to sleep in a co-sleeping uh, situation is, is amazed. That, that, that's an uh, unacceptably reckless thing to do, like the AAP says. If you know your child is in bed and you go to sleep, you should be aware of the possibilities. That's reckless. That, that you can't do that. That, that, that he says, is, is sheer negligence, even though it's true that while you're asleep, we can't hold you liable, but going to sleep with a child in your bed is simply reckless, he says. It's pshia. Karav lamezit. Mezit. Karav lamezit. He says, This, he says, is explicitly the opinion of the Maram of Rattenberg, or Mayor of Rattenberg, the, one of the greatest of all the Ashkenazic medieval authorities. I don't know if, we, if this tshuva is extant, if we have a copy of this tshuva somewhere, 
but he claims this is a, this is a tshuva of the realm of Rattenberg. And then he says, Nir Lahavi Raya, he brings a Raya from a, a din in Perikates and Aregel in Bavakama. It says, Adam Wad Olam, a person is liable for, essentially this is similar to the legal notion of strict liability. When a person is guilty of, of, a, of a tort, a tort committed by him personally, not, not his animal, not his fire, when he himself commits uh, an injury, breaks someone's window or breaks someone's leg, we have a principle called Adam Wad Olam, a person is considered always forewarned, meaning that he basically has strict liability. Bain Shogig, Bain Mezid, he's Chayef for Mezid, he's Chayef for Shogig. Bain Ar, Bain Yashin, he's Chayef even when he's asleep. So you see that even when someone's asleep, he's responsible for what he does. This Raya is not really such a compelling Raya, as we'll see later in the Vodas of Gershuni. On the contrary, Adamod Laola means even though he's not really culpable, even though he, he's not really considered negligent, he's Chayef anyway. Bain Shogig, Bain Mezid, even honest, the, the, the Allah is. If you're that just means it's a strict liability when it comes to torts. When it comes to paying compensation for an injury, the, the Torah decided to hold somebody strictly liable, except in the case where you're literally an absolute onus gum or you couldn't have done anything differently. But this is not because you're considered a pasheya. This is because the Torah chose to have a very, very low threshold for liability when it comes to tort compensation. When it comes to golos, you're not a shogi. You wouldn't have to go to golos necessarily. So the proof from here that you're chayev when you're sleeping doesn't really prove that you're considered a shogig. It proves that you're chayev as a mazik, which is not the same thing as saying that you're chayev galos, that you're considered a full-blown shogig, or even or mazid, even he's calling you a mazid. That lachari you don't see. Okay, but this, this is his position, that a person who goes to sleep in bed with a child is considered karov lepshia, is considered mazid. He, he takes the, a, the AAP guidance very seriously. The, 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 this, this is a, an objectively and clearly reckless thing to do. And therefore, if the child dies, don't say you're an onus, you're a mazid, you're a, you're a karav lepshia, and you're chayev. Va'od, he says, ba'alma mechur ha'davar ma'od, in a regular case, he says, even if we don't consider you a pasheya, it's mechur ha'davar, it's, uh, it, it, it's a very ugly thing to happen, even if you're not a not pasheya, he says, re'sof so, v'adahem and he says, benot, she was the proximate cause, even if it's not her fault, she should get a kapara, because what she did, objectively, is a terrible thing. Avo benidum didan, he says, we don't even know what happened here. Maybe the baby was dead in his crib. Maybe he suffered SIDS in the crib, and the shifcha, for reasons best known to herself, decided to pin it on the mother. We don't know what happened. Uh, she's not trustworthy, he says. We, we, don't, we, we don't know what uh, her agenda is. Maybe she caused the baby's death. Maybe she was somehow careless. Who knows what happened? So here we don't know what happened. We don't know Bechlal if she's actually, if she was the one who actually was the one who committed manslaughter here. So, who said she needs a kapara here, he says. Furthermore, he says, Even if we do assume that the mother did, did cause the death of the child, this is not called pshia. Even though he assumes a regular co-sleeper is considered pshia, a regular co-sleeper is considered reckless, in our case, she didn't do this deliberately. She wasn't trying to co-sleep. She put the baby in the crib the way she was supposed to. In the middle of the night, the shifcha came, for some reason, transferred the baby to nurse, or some other reason, transferred the baby from the crib to the mother, he says. So, she was asleep. How is this her fault, he says? What should she have done? She, she, she went to sleep with the baby safely in his crib. Someone transferred the baby in the middle of the night, he says. That's like a distinction made by the Talmud Yushalmi, going back on that din of Aaron Yashen, that a person's chayev whether he's awake or asleep, the Yushali makes a chiluk and says, If Ruvain is sleeping, 
he's sleeping in an empty location, clear of any, uh, any problematic other objects or people. He's sleeping in a safe spot. And then Shimon comes and sits, Shimon lies down to sleep next to Reuven. So if Reuven damaged uh, Shimon, if the first guy who already went to sleep damaged the second guy, he says that he's Potter. He could say, I went to sleep, there was nobody here. It's not my fault if you went to sleep after I was already asleep. Either because that's called Ones Gomer, some Rishonim learned, Tosis learns that's Ones Gomer. You, you, it, not, we don't literally have strict liability. If there's completely no fault at all, then, you, then you're not Chayev. Other Rishonim say, the Ramban says, the, here we have some kind of contributory negligence. It's the second guy's fault for, for, for laying down next to the first guy. If the second guy put some fragile utensils, fragile vessels next to the first guy, and the first guy rolled over and smashed in the first guy's potter. Even though on the one hand we said before, the Mishnah said, if someone is sleeping, he's chayib. That's when he went to sleep next to Caleb that are already here. That's reckless. You can't be held liable for what you do when you're asleep, because when you're asleep, you have no responsibility for what you do. What we do hold you liable for is going to sleep in a place where you, you, you should be anticipating the problems. So going to sleep in a, in, a, in a dangerous situation, that's your fault. But if you went to sleep and everything was safe and someone else then went and put something that got damaged next to you, so then you are uh, your potter. Similarly for Gullis, he says, if she went to sleep and the baby was safely in his crib, and then in the middle of the night someone transferred the baby into her bed, that's not her fault, she was asleep. Even though it's true that the way he told the story, the shifra said she was awake enough to curse her and to get angry at her, so she was somewhat awake, but I guess we don't really know how awake she was, you know, as we said before, a pregnant woman in the middle of the night, an exhausted pregnant woman, even if she's awake enough to curse at the person who's sticking the baby in her face, doesn't mean, I guess, I guess it doesn't mean she's really necessarily awake enough to be completely responsible for her actions, who knows if that part of the story was true. So in any event, the, in any event this is the argument of the Masas Binyamin, that even if we assume a regular co-sleeper, is, is culpable, is liable, is chay of galos, is chay of tshuva, because it is it's simply irresponsible to go to sleep with a child in bed. This woman went to sleep safely in, uh, in, in her bed with the baby in the crib, and if the baby got transferred by a third party in the middle of the night, that, he says, is not her fault. Incidentally, just to refer to another share we gave in this, in this series uh, a couple of years ago, I think, there's a tshuva of the Bach, the Bach was talking about another tragedy. There were a bunch of uh, young bucks who were celebrating a wedding, I think, or some kind of nuptial celebration, and they, they were engaged in that, apparently it's a Russian custom or a European, Eastern European custom, that when they used to toast each other, they would then hurl the glasses against the wall. Apparently it's an old Russian or European, Eastern European custom, and one of the glasses shattered and a fragment of glass uh, hit somebody in the eye and cost him his sight in that eye. So the question was, is the person who threw the glass chayev? So one of the defenses was, they were drunk. And if a person is drunk, if he's really drunk, the shekrusa shalot, he's not chayev for what, maybe he's not chayev for what he does while he's drunk. I don't think the judge would accept that if you tell him, I'm not chayev for drunk driving because I was drunk and it's not my fault. But in halacha, that's what the Bach debates. Is that an excuse? The Bach also says, no, it's not an excuse. The Bach says, even if it's true that you're not liable for what you do when you're drunk, who asked you to get drunk, he says. If this is how you behave when you're drunk, if you're, uh, if, you're, uh, if you're a menace to society when you're drunk, then it's reckless to get drunk, he says. You, you shouldn't have gotten that drunk. You, you, you can't use drunkenness as an exemption from liability that will hold you responsible for getting drunk if that's how you behave when you're drunk. That's the similar position, and I think he makes his connection to sleeping as well. And that's the, that's the doctrine Halacha has, 
that even though you're considered somewhat negligent at least for going to sleep where there is a foreseeable possibility that you're going to cause some injury or death when in your sleep, but if you went to sleep and everything was safe and then someone altered the environment after you were asleep, then you are putter, and that's another reason why in his particular case he says you would be putter. So now he says, even if a regular, so a regular co-sleeper he holds his chayev, he holds his uh, mezid, shia, this type of co-sleeper, we don't even know what happened, Bechlal, he says, we, we don't even know what happened, and even if the story is that the shifka said was true, it's not the mother's fault, she was half asleep, she was totally asleep when the baby came into her bed. So Lefizia, he says, because of these arguments, Hayanira lift our Ishalagamri. So maybe in our case, he says, we should hold her, uh, we should, she should be off the hook, we shouldn't hold her culpable at all. Because again, Gabi Nizikin, when it comes to Nizikin, even though we have this very high standard, this very low threshold for liability of Adam Laolam, Ben Shogi Ben Mezid, Ephilo Ones Chayev Lashalem, unless, except for Ones Gomer, but even, even in our, our regular Ones is Chayev, but Ephilo Achi Gavna, when you're asleep, you're Potter. In the case of the Yushalmi says that if you went to sleep and everything was safe and then someone came afterwards, that's called Ones Gomer, you're Potter. That's the way Tosh explains Yushalmi. Who had them needed done? So he says that, he says that, the, so according to this, this second argument, even if the mother did kill the child, she's an honest gummer because the baby was safe in the baby's crib when she went to sleep. Says the Masas Binyamin, nevertheless, he turns around one last twist and says, nevertheless, he thinks she still has culpability because when it comes to the, the grave crime of murder, we have an incredibly strict standard that, she, that you're chayev, even if you have only a remote causal connection to the death. And he brings another biblical raya, David HaMelech. David HaMelech, he says, is blamed for the massacre of Novi Rakan. The Masmin Yaman is quoting a Gemara that makes this point. The, the story of Novi Rakanim was David was on the run from Shoal. At one point, David sought refuge in Novi Rakanim, and they were hospitable to him, they gave him bread. Shaul later found out that they were harboring this, what he, the person he considered to be a treasonous fugitive and an existential threat to his, to his government, to his, to, his, to, his, to his throne. So in, in, in his fury at, the, at, the, at what he considered the treason of Novir Akonim, he had the city massacred. He had the city put to the sword. So he says, so, so the, the question is, so Shaul certainly is criticized for that, for what he did to, know, to, to Novir Akonim, but David bears blame as well. He says there's a Gemara, there's a Gemara that says that the, there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin, in Perichelech, that says the Kosh Baruch Hu told David, Ad Masai Avon Zebiyadcha, Al Yadcha Nerga, Novir Akonim, Al Yadcha Nerag Shol. David was blamed for the death of Novir Akonim and the death of Shol, but he was blamed for the death of Novir Akonim because he was the one who put the, the people of Novir Akonim into this position. It was his flight. David certainly didn't anticipate that, that, that that's what would happen. Shaul should have been reasonable. Shaul should have understood that they didn't mean to harbor the fugitive. They, they didn't know that he was no longer Shaul's favorite. David, had, David used to be Shaul's favorite. They, they didn't know that there was a, ter, a change in the, in, in the palace uh, fortunes and that David was now running for his life. So David didn't anticipate that they would get in so much trouble. Nevertheless, because ultimately he, ultimately he was the one who indirectly, in a not even foreseeable way, caused their death, David is considered morally liable for the deaths of Novi Rakanim. Kolshkin, he says, in our case, he says that it's not just an indirect causation, the mother, the mother may have done it via daim. And again, we have to be machmer. 
you see that the, that, that, the, that the threshold for some kind of moral culpability for murder, for manslaughter, is very, very low. The standard of uh, we hold you to is very, very high. And therefore, even if she's not really considered a mazid, even if she has these dispensations, she, she still needs some kind of tshuva. And we, uh, and we, can't, uh, we can't let her off scot-free. And then he throws in a real whopper. He throws in a real uh, hair-raising comment. He says, This would be true even for an ordinary woman who had a story like this. Certainly this woman, he says, This is the second child that she lost by co-sleeping. One wonders that he, he, this is literally buried in literally one line in the middle of the tshuva, but one wonders if his entire tshuva of finding all kinds of arguments l'chumra is somewhat motivated by this line, that this is the second time this happened. That she lost a second... On the one hand, you feel your heart, your heart breaks for this woman. She lost two children in a way that she's probably blaming herself for. On the other hand, in terms of uh, the halacha, in terms of tshuva and moral culpability, he says the, the, the onus on her is even, is, is even graver. The, the, blame, the blame we place on her, she should have learned her lesson after the first time, he says. So the... Certainly, we, certainly she, she bears some level of culpability. And therefore, after all these twists and turns and back and forth, he feels that she bears some, some degree of culpability. And this is the tshuva that he prescribes. The Libi Omer, the last paragraph of the tshuva, she should fast 40 days consecutively. Now, that doesn't mean 40 days without eating, you eat at night, but it means that you 40 consecutive fast days during the day, except Shabbat says Yom Tovim. She can't fast on Shabbat and Yom Tov. But those days she has to make up. She has to reach forty. So it'll be uh, so 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 it'll be an extra it'll be an extra you know, six seven days at least beyond the beyond the forty day forty day period to make up for all the shabbatos and yom tovim if there are any. She can't just wait and do those days later when it's convenient. At the end of the forty, she has to add another six plus days to make up for the days that she missed. And these fast days. She shouldn't eat meat or wine, meaning on the, the night, the, the, the intervening night, she shouldn't eat meat or wine. She shouldn't sleep on pillows and, and mattresses, sleep on the floor, sleep on a bare bed. After the end of the 40 days, for the rest, for another full year of 365 days, she should fast Mondays and Thursdays for the entire year. Not sure why 365 instead of the normal Hebrew lunar year of 354. Okay, 365 days of Mondays and Thursdays fasting, except she doesn't need a fast on even the minor quasi-holidays. You don't say tachnun. Those are days she doesn't have to fast. He doesn't say here if she has to make up those days. Uh, at least, uh, I'm sorry, he does say, she does say. She shouldn't fast while she's pregnant or nursing because that's bad for her health or the child's health. Whatever she misses, I guess either for tachnun or for pregnant and nursing, she has to make up those days and fast afterward. Just like he said before, for the first 40 days and the intervening nights, she shouldn't eat, she shouldn't drink meat or eat meat or drink wine. So on these fast days of, of Mondays and Thursdays, she also shouldn't eat meat or drink wine on the nights before or after. Furthermore, even beyond all these fast days, for this entire one-year period, she shouldn't wear any silver or gold jewelry, even on Shabbos and Yom Tov. Furthermore, she should avoid all parties and festivities. She should avoid all simchas, usudas mireim, and weddings, and so on. She should also have a general posture of tshuva, 
Tidag b'tachnias liba. She should worry and uh, force her heart into submission. She should say vidui l'fneamakom b'chal b'chal yomi me'atainis. Every day of her fast day, she should say a vidui. She should say the vidui in Lashon Ashkenaz, meaning in Yiddish, or the, the vernacular, which she understood. The women weren't always able to read Hebrew, so she should say it, or understand Hebrew, so she should say it in, in Ashkenaz, where she'll fully understand what she's saying. But She should pray and beg Hashem for forgiveness. After the 365 days, as soon as they're over, then all these uh, obligations and prohibitions are lifted, and she goes back to regular person. However, still, V'tov Shittasana, it is good that she should continue to fast for continue to fast for the it's better that she should continue to fast for, for, the, for, for the rest of her life he says one, one day a month however he reiterates while she's pregnant or nursing when she has other illnesses or weak points in her life she shouldn't fast, even Shemba Okay, then she shouldn't fast, do all these Then she should take it easy, so not to injure her health. So I just want to say, I just posted yes. in the chat a link to an article saying that SIDS has a genetic component. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that it feels particularly unfair here. Right, so, so, so Adas is pointing out that uh, nobody really knows SIDS is, you know, even the name, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, implies that we don't really understand it. That's why we call it sudden. So Hadas is pointing a link to, a, to an article that says that they have discovered that there's possibly a genetic component. So, so in cases where we don't know how the baby actually died, or maybe even if we do know how he, maybe how he died, maybe if he's more prone to it because of genetics, may she, so Hadas is arguing maybe there, maybe there should be less blaming the mother and more of an, more of an understanding that, the, that uh, it, could have happened to, it could have happened to you or me, and she happens to have, uh, she, she lost the genetic lottery. I hear that. And, and the truth is, you know, all these things probably go together. The, the AAP, based on their evidence, says that there's clearly a link, there's some link between uh, co-sleeping and death. It's not, it's, not, it's not 100%. It doesn't mean every co-sleeper is going to kill the child, of course, and every non-co-sleeper is going to live, but it means... You know, so, so some researchers have identified genetic links. Some have found a link with co-sleeping. The AAP itself says that, that a baby in the other room is a very high risk, also a much higher risk of dying. It's much better to keep it in your room than keep it out of your room. So yeah, there, there are a variety of behaviors and genes, environment and environment and genetics that have been linked uh, with, with greater or more or less uh, higher or lower degrees of confidence to... Uh, to the, to the death, so ultimately we don't really know, and ultimately, um, so yeah, so the, so, so the point is that in, in, any, in any of these cases the post we're discussing, the, the question she's raising is, how do we really know how much is really her fault, and how much is uh, simply a genetic problem that, that could have happened to anyone else? Yeah, well, so. You, you know, but maybe this is too literal, but it says, lo no da mihi kahu ve'emosai, that it's, we, don't, we don't know who hit him, who hit the baby, and when. Right. Right. So, 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 Jason is pointing out that the language of the tshuva is lo no da mihi kahu, which literally means, as Jason said, it literally means we don't know who smote him, who who struck him. So, th- th- this is the problem with, uh, with 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 writing in melitza, with writing in poetry. Lo no da mihi kahu is is a direct quote from the from the Chumash, where in the parish of Ermikla, of Egla Rufa, I think, or we, we just had it, or we're doing, what, in, uh, the, 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 pasuk, the Pasuk of Lo No Da Mihiko, it says that if you find a Chalal, if you find a, uh, if you, if you, fi- if you find a, a, a Chalal Be'er, 
if you find a kimatze chalal ba'adama, asher Hashem alokecha nesein lechal l'rishtana fel basadeh lo no damihiko. He was clearly mur- he was pretty clearly murdered, and you don't know who murdered him. So you do then then you do the famous parsha of Egla Rufa. So he's obviously uh, alluding to that pasuk. The, the question is, does he mean what Jason is suggesting that we literally mean that he was struck and not that it was it wasn't Sid? That we actually see there's a traumatic injury and that's what killed him, or, or is it just a kind of poetic phrase? It means we don't know what the cause of his death was. I initially assumed that, that it meant the latter, that it just we don't know the cause of the death, but you know, Jason is suggesting it's possible that this is not SIDS. It's possible we're talking about uh, an, an actual injury. So, so some of the posts can discuss what we do know about. Some of the truths we read last week, for example, got into the details of what do we know about exactly, uh, exactly who killed him. So, for example, in the Raf Palam, he says, he says uh, in his case, he says we, she doesn't know if she smothered the baby by, or crushed or smothered by rolling over on him, or or she suffocated him by placing a hand over his uh, nose, or or he died on his own, SIDS or something else. Some of the chuvas, the post can clearly acknowledge they don't know how the baby died. And most of these chuvas, you know, there was no, no autopsy and no, there, was, there was no real diagnosis of, uh, of how the baby died. If, if there was an indication that he died from you know, trauma, from an, from an externally inflicted injury, Yes, so I guess that, that, that wouldn't be SIDS anymore, that would be something else. So I don't know, these are all valid points, I don't know. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the, the problem is, like with most modern science, modern science is very good, at, uh, you know, very good at doing studies that establish some degree of correlation, but uh, there, are, there are often multiple factors that go into any, that go into any particular event, and, uh, and, and how should we apportion blame? If you, did, if, you, if you took action which, according to the best science we have, increases the likelihood of a problem, but there are also genetic factors at play, which may even be greater than the, these factors, how do we apportion the blame? So that, that, that I agree that that's a very valid question, and yeah, so I, I, I take the point, and uh, so we're, we're, we're almost finished uh, the first of the, the first chuvas, he just says that he says every year on the yard site of, uh, of, 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 this, of this terrible accident, he says she, she should fast again, as it says, she should remember the chayt her whole life. Al Melech says, I, I know my sins, and my, and, and my sins are always in front of me. This is possibly an allusion to a Gemara in Yoma, in Yana de Yoma. The Gemara in Yoma brings a machlokas. It says that an Avera that a person said vidu for a one Yom Kippur, the Tanakhama says, he should not repeat vidu on the next Yom Kippur. He's done, he's finished. And it says it's wrong. Because you're like a kelev shavol keo, ksil shonabi valto. Dwelling and obsessing over a sin that you already confessed once, done, except Hashem accepts your tshuva, you did tshuva, you're finished, no more worrying about the Avera. We don't pass them like that, though, because the Gemara brings another opinion, the Brisa brings another opinion. It's good to reiterate the vidui every Yom Kippur. Shnemar, kipshoy ani eida, v'chrat neti samit. Dovna Melech was said, I, I remember my chatayim indefinitely, I remember them forever. We paskin like Rebbe Lezer ben Yaakov, you may not be mechuyiv to say the vidui over again, but you, it is a good idea. Shulchan Aruch paskins and Elchus Yom Kippur, avonu shetishizvada aleim, biyom ekipurim, shavar avloshana aleim, and avera that you committed once, you said vidui, you did a proper tshuva, you don't have to, apparently, but if you want, it is permitted, the Gemara says Meshubach, permitted to say Vidu again, and that's what the Masbun Yaman feels. This woman should remember this her whole life. He lays the guilt on pretty thick, and he should, uh, again, and again, just speaking to Hadas's point, how much is this really her fault? 
again, some of the some some of the the Hummer here may have to do with the fact that this was the second child that it happened to. So even if it's genes, if it happens once, you should certainly be uh, attuned to the possibility that you have those those genetic factors. And certainly, going forward, you should avoid uh, any other risk factors that could exacerbate the risk. So he says again, uh, his final line is a very pragmatic line: Achkoliyamad the Kabbalah Tizar Maod. His final recommendation is for the rest of her life she should be very careful. She shouldn't do this again. It happened twice already. Now again, I, I don't mean to judge women who do this. I, I, I'm not a woman, but I hear from my wife the, the kind of the desperation and the sheer, the sheer uh, un, un, you know, formerly unthinkable levels of exhaustion that a mother goes through when, with a newborn. Yeah, and uh, my wife points out I have family members who uh, who do co-sleep, but um, the point is that and I, I simply meant to express the the position of the postkim that they they took for granted that 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 deliberate a deliberate a deliberate conscious choice to co-sleep is, is reckless and negligent, and certainly after after one child was lost this way already, and all the Maspanyam and study kula were based on the fact that we don't know exactly what happened this time, and she went to sleep uh, safely with, with the child in the crib. He takes for granted, though, that a uh, deliberate, conscious choice to co-sleep is reckless, and a person is culpable for the outcome. The other tshuva I want to study tonight is a tshuva of the Avodah Sigurshuni. The Avodah Sigurshuni was a, was a later posik, a little bit later, also, re- also earlier than the post we did last week, but, the, but his name was Rav Gershon Ashkenazi, he was he was in the he was he, he, he was from the early to late seventeenth century. He was born in Hey Shinai and Hey, which is which is sixteen uh, sixteen twenty five or so. He died in sixteen ninety three. He was also a rav in Vienna, in Hanau, in Metz, in various German cities. He's called Ashkenazi. His sefer was called Rav Gershuni. He also wrote the Chidushi Gershuni on on Shulchan Aruch, I think. He was also a great European posek about uh, about half a century after, half a century to a century after the Maspanyamin. He was the second major tshuva of which I'm aware, who discusses co-sleeping and its unfortunate consequence. He is a little more lenient, although fundamentally he doesn't. Uh, we'll see. Fundamentally, he agrees to a, to, a, to a good deal of the Maspanyamin's outline, although he's inclined to be a little bit more lenient. His case was as follows: Nidrashi Lasher Shaluni. I was asked to express my opinion. A woman. Terrible thing happened to her. That uh, a double avera manslaughter was her own child. Even he says, woman, a yeledes, a, a new a new mother. It was uh, a day after the day after the mila. She took the child in her arms to nurse him. This is similar to the chasim sofer's case. It happened following nursing. Also, she wanted to take care of the child. She wanted to see the child was doing okay. And he says, She had no one else to take care of the child. He's going to reiterate this point soon, that apparently it was normal for women to have baby nurses or to have some kind of help. A, a, a new mother was uh, barely recovering herself. She needed help taking care of the child. So it was normal or common for a woman to get some kind of help, whether, I don't know if it was paid help or family, but uh, it was apparently common or standard for a woman to have help. But she had no help. She couldn't find anyone to help her. And it wasn't her fault, he says. It wasn't because she didn't try. He says, she looked, she tried, she asked people, she, she said, please help me, I'm a new mother, I need help with my baby. Uh, please help me take care of the baby. She couldn't find anyone. She probably didn't have money, which means she couldn't pay someone, and maybe she didn't have friends, so she couldn't uh, find friends, and she, uh, she was stuck with the baby by herself. So this woman, she, he says, 
she took the baby to nurse him, and then she just fell asleep. He, meaning, she didn't deliberately go to sleep by co-sleeping, but again, she fell asleep while, while she held the baby after nursing him. When she woke up, she found the baby was still in her arms, same position as before, but he was dead. Lo yada, mahayla, la yela, she doesn't know what happened to the baby. Did she roll over on him and smother him, or did he die for some other reason? Very similar to the Chasim Sofer's case. The woman is, again, a pious woman. She felt uh, profoundly guilty. Maybe she killed him. Maybe she was in some way responsible for his death. Therefore, she wants tshuva shlema. She wants me to prescribe penance for her. Maybe she can find some kind of atonement for this terrible thing. Therefore, I'm going to answer you as follows. He says, on the one hand, we know that the Avera of manslaughter is a very, very serious Avera. The Rambam says, on the one hand, there are Averas that in terms of the strict severity of the Avera, other Averas are more strict. About Dezara, perhaps, but there are Averas that are more strict, he says. But in a certain sense, Shvichas Dalim is the worst. In a certain sense, even if it's not on, a, on an axis of pure Chomer, it's not absolutely the most serious, in a certain sense, murder is the worst, he says, because it destroys Yishuv, Yishuv HaOlam. Even Avodah Zarah, Arayas, Chol Shabbos, are not, are not as bad as Shvichas Dalim in this sense, he says. He says, those are Averas, but Adam Lamakam. Here, other people are involved, but Adam Lachavero has an additional dimension of severity. Anyone who has the Averas Shvichas Dalim is a Rosh Gomer. None of the mitzvahs can outweigh this terrible Avera. They won't save him in the din, and so on. Achav, he says, King Achav, the wicked King Achav, one of the most notorious idol worshippers, uh, he's held up as a, as a paradigm of uh, evil idolater. Nevertheless, when, uh, when Hashem was weighing his mitzvahs in Averis, and they said, uh, who's going to punish him? The Ruach says, I will be responsible for his death. Who, who is the Ruach? Chazal say the Ruach was Navos, the, the, the vengeful spirit of Navos, who he had murdered. And the, even though it was indirect, he didn't kill, kill Navos with his own hands. He simply brought about his death. All the, all the Vodazara Achav did, the worst of error that he did was murder. Murder is a, a very, very serious of error. The Rokeach, the, the Rokeach was Riverliezer Rokeach, one of the great German Rishonim from the Hasidic Ashkenaz school. He was the one who, who instituted many of these severe penances for Averis, and he was very, very strict about murder. However, he says, after all is said and done, this Rambam, this Rokeach, all this Chomer of Rutzicha, this all refers to someone who is a deliberate murderer, someone who's Beshogig. So a real shogig, we're not as serious as a mason. But a real shogig is still somewhat serious, he says. However, he says, someone, someone who kills while sleeping, he says, like the Masbin Yaman said, it's not even his fault at all. He's car of lowness. How is he, how, what, why is it his fault? He, he was asleep when it happened. And, and he, unlike, here, he, here he goes the opposite of the Masbin Yaman. The Masbin Yaman says that when the Mishnah says, you're when you're asleep, the, you see that you're, it's your fault because you're Patra Bonus Gomer, but he says, no, on the contrary, it's right the other direction. There's a very, very high standard, a very low threshold for being Chayev. You have almost strict liability because you're Chayev even for an onus as long as it's not onus Gomer. If it's a, 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 more or less an onus, it's not an absolute 100% onus, you're still Chayev. But you're not Chayev Gullus for that. If you're mostly an onus, you're not Chayev Gullus. So just because you're chayev when you're asleep, yeah, you're chayev when you're asleep. That's because you're, you're not 100% absolutely honest. But you're not enough culpable to be chayev gullus. He, he proves this from the Rishonim. So he says that, uh, he says that, so he thinks, he says, that if it happened when you were asleep, he says he, he doesn't think you'd be chayev, even, even if you co-slept, even, even if you slept when the baby was there. 
he doesn't think that the he doesn't think that that you should be chayev for that. That the it's true the Masben Yaman says you are, but he disagrees. He thinks that if you fell asleep, that's not karav lepshi at all. That he thinks is uh, is shogeg or ones. It's not it's not karav lemezid. It's not pshia. It's not even a shogeg. If anything, it's karav laones. He does say chatfas or shina that she fell asleep. She just couldn't stay awake. I'm not sure if he means that based on the proof he's bringing from the Gemara in. Babakama, he may mean even if she chose to go to sleep, he still considers her an onus. I'm not sure, but certainly in, in the in the Shayla itself, it does in the Shayla itself, I don't think it was entirely clear how she fell asleep. He says that he says she couldn't find someone to take care of the baby. He says, Khatfasoshina. Khatfasoshina could mean that she tried desperately to stay awake, uh, but she couldn't, or it could mean that she just got tired and went to sleep. It sounds more like he's not even blaming her for falling asleep. We, we saw this point in the Chasim Sofer also. He says if it, if that falling asleep is an onus. It's not, it's not her fault. It, 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 it's not her fault, he says, that she, that, that, that she fell asleep. The, the language of the Chasim Sofer was that uh, after she nursed her, he says, nursing her was good. The baby needs it. Then she was nensa bonashina. She says that she, uh, she, she, she fell asleep bonus. So I'm, I'm not sure if the if the means that, that she fell asleep bonus. He does emphasize she had no one to take care of the baby, so she really had no choice. But either way, he says, unlike the Masipin Yaman, who says that going to sleep is reckless and is mazed and karav lepshia, if the baby's there with you, the says, in this case, the baby was there with her, she had the baby in her arms. Going to sleep, he says, he doesn't think we should really call her a poshea or a mazed or even a shogig. He thinks the correct way to look at her is karav laonis. He thinks that she's basically an onus. Even if she'd be chayef for nazikin, because adam would laolam, but for gullus or for tshuva, she wouldn't really be chayef. So he's inclined to say it's not really her fault. We shouldn't blame her for this. However, he says, he saw the Masab and Yaman. The Masab and Yaman brought the Marami Rottenberg. So we have the Kadmonim. We have the Marami Rottenberg is, uh, is an extremely authoritative voice. So he says, we can't be mekel when the Rishonim will machmer. So even though he would be inclined to say the woman is really off the hook. She's an onus. But you have a Maram of Rattenberg. So what am I going to do, he says. So I have to say, I have to say that she needs some kind of tshuva. However, I'm not going to be super strict on her, he says. So what is his idea of not being super strict? I'm not going to be more machmer than the Masas bin Yaman, which was pretty strict. Masas bin Yaman had 40 days of fasting, plus extra ones to make up Shabbos and Yantif, plus another year of Sheni Vachamishi, plus another uh, once every month for the rest of her life, plus uh, on the yard site, plus uh, not sleeping on beds and meat and wine. For the, the, the Mas was pretty strict. But he says, more than that, I'm not going to go. More than the Mas and I certainly think there's no need to be machmer. That's what she should do, and Hashem should give her a kapara. Now, on the one hand, he said the Mas Yaman's case was more, was more lenient than our case, because we don't even know what happened in that case, he says, and uh, we, we, don't, we don't really know what happened in the case of the, of the story, and... Um, and uh, and so on, but uh, maybe our case is more strict. On the other hand, he says our case also has a leniency, and he brings the leniency we discussed last week of the Chasim Sofer. Since the baby was so young, he might have been a Nefel. We don't really know that he would have survived. He's within 30 days. The Chasim Sofer said that that really doesn't count as long as, as long as the baby didn't die on his own, as long as we, we're pretty sure he was killed, he was likely killed through an external source. We have no reason to doubt his viability. The, the, the Avodah Yerushuni seems to disagree. He may have been the one the Chassam Sarfer was referring to when he said that uh, somebody was Mekil, based on this Avodah Yerushuni, but the Avodah Yerushuni feels this is a Tzad Kula, that if we, if we don't know for sure he was viable, we consider him a genuine Suffolk. You have to read the Sugya and see, uh, see the argument for or against which, which interpretation of the Halachas of Nefel seems more correct. 
Akal Panam, he throws in the Svar of Nefil as well. And therefore he says, this is his conclusion, that there's no need to be excessively strict. He goes back and forth on the subject of Nefil, but at the end of the day, so at the end of the day, he really, he really arrives at a position similar to the Mas ben Yaman. In theory, he's inclined to be more lenient. In theory, he argues that, the Mas, that even in a case of genuine co-sleeping, the Mas ben Yaman was, took for granted you know, that you're a maid, that you're a mazed and a pasheya. He thinks if you fell asleep, you know, certainly if you fell asleep by Onus, maybe you're really in a car of Laonis, he says, he might be inclined to be more mekel. But at the end of the day, the Mas ben Yaman was machmer, even in a case of not deliberate co-sleeping, even in a case where you went to sleep and the baby was in the crib. Even there, the Mas ben Yaman felt we should be machmer. And who had in his case, if Adesar Yashuni says, he thinks we should be, he thinks we should be, uh, we should be machmer in his case as well, even though he himself is inclined to leniency. He says that, uh, he says that, he says that the, in his, case, in his case, he's inclined to be lenient because self calls self. It's not really her fault. The woman tried to do everything she could. Nevertheless, because the because the because the Marami Rattenberg, cited by the Mas ben Yaman, says you should be machmer, he's inclined to be machmer as well, and therefore he recommends at least do the penance of the Mas ben Yaman, and that will be sufficient, and Hashem should grant her atonement, and uh, that's his final word. So again, we, we've seen arguments for or against. We've seen the Mas ben Yaman of Yashuni, who, in principle, of Yashuni is inclined to be more lenient. Lahalacha, they're both machmer. We saw the Chasim Sofer, the later post came, the Chasim Sofer and the and the and the Dvar Elio, Rabbi Lerman, are both in, both more mekil. Certainly, in the case where you did it in order to nurse. Again, even they're not mekil in the case of deliberate co-sleeping, but in the case of nursing, where the woman fell asleep afterward, they're more lenient. We saw the Rav Palam last week, who was more machmer. So it's interesting, despite the fact that the AAP notes that many cultures uh, do have co-sleeping and some people believe it's good for the baby, they say science doesn't recommend it, and it's, uh, it's noteworthy that in the, the five, or, five, five or so major poskim we discussed the, the past two weeks, they all pretty much agree that co-sleeping is bad and should be avoided. They argue, should we call her a mazid? In a classic case of co-sleeping, they argue, should we call her a mazid? Should we call her a, uh, an ones? She fell asleep. It's not really her fault. Once she fell asleep, but the so we do find some difference of opinion there. But at the end of the day, the the postkim in this case, at least, are actually some are, are actually more or less in line with the modern recommendations against co-sleeping. And it's only a question of how liable should we hold the woman after the fact. Again, I, no, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I, I, I did not do real research on this topic. I'm not. I understand you know, that there are those who challenge the AAP's findings and. Uh, and you know, like most things, we end where we began, the mommy wars, people have firmly held opinions. I'm not, uh, not telling people what to do, I'm not being machria, but uh, as, as, my wife, as my wife keeps noting, whenever, whenever we discuss co-sleeping, she reacts in horror. She says, my husband showed me so many tshuvas in the, in the acronym of babies who died when co-sleeping. So my wife has a healthy fear of co-sleeping, and uh, that's kind of my perspective from the halakhic literature. But again, there, 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 there's modern research, it has to be studied more carefully. And, and, and uh, we've seen the, the history, the, we've seen some of the, the major truths on the topic. There are others, but uh, we're going to close here.